Let me ask you to turn with me early in the New Testament Scriptures to the second chapter of Matthew. We read a portion last Lord's Day from this and alluded to other of the Nativity portions. This one falls into that category as well. I want to read a brief reading from verse 1 down to verse 8. So Matthew chapter 2. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, For out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privately called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. Well, then the reading in verse 1, trust again the Lord to bless the public reading of His Word. Let's bow our heads together. Our Heavenly Father, as we gather this day, we have sung psalms and hymns of eternal perspective, a call to all nations and all people to worship the one true God. It is as true, it is as necessary today as it was the day it was written. We have sung of your help to your people in ages past and of you, the same God, being our hope for years to come. And we have sung of peace. Your word describes a peace that passes understanding. Peace in all seasons of life, the different chapters of life that belong to each of us and will belong to us in this year. Grant us grace again to live in our hearts and minds something a little more of that eternal day during the many days that will make up this year. Help us as we consider your word this Lord's Day. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Approaching a new year always comes with a sense of the unknown. We can look back and we can even look around with some measure of experience. Our level of understanding alongside of that experience might be, well, I think we should say always is imperfect, but at least we've been there and we are here. 
but we've never experienced the future. And the turning of the calendar at the new year usually brings us to some measure of evaluation. The new year will bring experiences that affect us as individuals. Perhaps we will finally lose that 20 pounds that we've been finding in recent years. Perhaps our business will bring unexpected profits. Perhaps we will contract an incurable disease. These and countless other possibilities may affect just us. Other aspects of the new year could have an impact on everyone. Where will the housing market go this year? The stock market. The prices at the corner market. Will others have enough to buy what I sell? Will I have enough to buy what others sell? What political party will win the election? Yeah, well, it's one of those years again. Always a very calm season in our nation. Calmer every time. Perhaps not. What foreign dictator will stir up trouble? Will there be any major terrorist event? Does the world approach 2024 with a sense of optimism or with a sense of foreboding? Well, whatever may come in 2024 to the world, each of us will face it as an individual. We will live through it or die within this year as an individual. Those of us gathered in this place today will enter this new year as professing Christian individuals. Just as believers, church members have lived through the unknown throughout history. Will we be faithful and honor God in this new year? Or will we fall into unbelief and the sins that always flow from Well, I certainly do not want to assume the role of a misguided prophecy preacher today. I have sat through and lived through too many failed predictions for that. Earlier in the week, I actually mentally started trying to make a list of the predictions that I've heard preached and lived through and uh, I just decided it wasn't entirely fruitful. One of them actually snuck up on me because I was at in the back of the former food fair grocery store one morning by a fellow employee. This was when I was working there in the early days of the church. He started asking me about the world. Strange biblical questions coming from this fellow that I knew. And I said, why are you asking? He said, well, I heard on the radio today. I knew what radio station he listened to most of the time. It wasn't where you heard much Bible. You heard a lot of stuff that, well, the Bible spoke against on that radio station and most of the others. I digress. But he had heard on that station a prediction of the end of the world by some Bible preacher. Well, I sought to speak to him a little more correctly about the Bible that day. Those predictions, I say, have come and go. I can also give you, or cannot give you, an inspired preview of what personal circumstances you will face in this year 
or the next. But I can take you to the scriptures and look with you at little pieces of life and history that the Lord has recorded and preserved for us to see in the lives of others the years that they have faced. I've commented recently on comparing in my own thoughts much in these last weeks the circumstances that surrounded the first advent of Christ and well, what circumstances will prevail before and surrounding the second advent of Christ. Again, predictions here. But just living life in the providence of God where He has placed us, what events will come upon us. And what I want to do today is just to survey several scriptures and look at the people focused primarily on the days surrounding the coming of Christ because, well, really all the characters that we read of in the New Testament, that was their generation. Even when we come to the later portions of the New Testament, a lot of the people were born and lived through those earliest days. And so I put before you today as we begin, I have a list here and I look at the clock and well, we'll just call it quits when the clock is worn out or telling me that you're probably worn out. But I want to survey several people. People that were regular people. That lived regular lives. They just happened to be recorded for us or little pieces of it. I often like to use the word windows when we talk about people and their lives in the scripture because we just have little windows, divinely inspired and chosen windows into their lives. But the people that were living in those days. And I just ask you to ask yourself this question as we think about these people. There certainly won't be exact parallels. In many cases there can't be parallels from their circumstances to our own. But ask yourself the question today as we think about these people. Which of these people will I be the most like? We've read today in Matthew 2 portion that precedes more of the nativity and of course that story of the wise men in the midst. But there's a phrase in what we read in Matthew that I want to have us pause for our first little window today. When the wise men came to Herod and they're their own people that we'll briefly look at in our list. When the wise men came to Herod and spoke to him of the birth of the king of the Jews and he inquires of them about this child. He is troubled, it said. Remember, this is Herod the Great, aging Herod, remarkably near the end of his life, not merely his reign, and yet he's worried about some usurper baby king. But there's a phrase that follows where it says Herod was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. 
the people of Jerusalem were troubled. Perhaps not so troubled at the news that these wise men were seeking one called the King of the Jews. They were troubled at the news that Herod was troubled. What had life held for these people of Jerusalem? Think of the last four centuries. Think of that that we describe as the intertestamental period. The time after the captivities of the northern and the southern tribes of Israel. The time after God had brought that thing that Ezra described as a little reviving in their bondage and brought that remnant back to, to build the temple again, to reestablish life in the nation, to be that people whom God would honor His promise and send the Christ. But of everything that had transpired in those centuries, I read yesterday in what, well, would have been a textbook decades ago for me, it's been long replaced in libraries. But Maritini's New Testament Times, just about a hundred pages of, well, your mind kind of goes blurry when you're reading of all the, well, particularly when you get into the generals that were the successors of Alexander the Great, those four partitions of his empire and the infighting back and forth there and all that Jerusalem endured during those years. Jerusalem is troubled. That is now propped up by Rome, ruling over them. Their life goes on. The wise men have come. I said we'd mention them again. Here's a little question for us. Why are these men of the East at all interested in what would happen among the Jews. The commentators have wrestled with it and conjectured for years and answer all the questions we have. But some things are obvious. They had some knowledge of people. There was a vast Jewish population probably larger in Babylon than in Jerusalem. Those that had their own communities following their captivity. Jews of the dispersion are now in every nation. The wise men know of this king. Was it a remnant testimony by the Jews remaining in Babylon and its surroundings? Was it a careful studying, as some suggest, of the prophecy of the 70 weeks of Daniel? What was the star? Well, we have a lot of different questions there thing to me is these people in Jerusalem that are troubled. They don't trouble themselves to go with the wise men to seek this one. They, what would it mean? Those in Bethlehem learned what it meant. Wicked, unjust, insecure, powerful man on a whim to kill the male children two years and under. The same one we mentioned last Lord's Day that slew his favorite wife, many historians do, and killed one of his own sons. 
for his own power. Jerusalem was troubled. There are many things in our day that are troubling. Political leaders with great power, with seemingly little regard for law. We're used to hearing of that in news of third world countries as we speak of them. It seems to prevail now in Western nations that have known the restraints, the security, and the peace of law. Remarkable that that one coming prince the scripture describes as a man of lawlessness. It may be that some of us will be troubled people in this year and the years ahead. And yet during this season of trouble, there are realities that are encouraging. I've spoken often from different directions and different times in recent years about the ecclesiastical situation among the Jews. What are we going to do in these times of the Gentiles? Gentile empires that are just coming wave after wave. We, we're taking a captivity. We finally get to come home. But yet, what of us? We're a little blip on the radar that everybody wants to control. We're the crossroads of the world. Well, one branch of the church said, if we're going to survive, we've got to work with these people. And success. They were wealthy priests. But they were the minority. The larger party among the Jewish leaders were the Pharisees. These were the ones that said, no, we cannot be like the world. We must be different from the world. They are, even in name, separatists. That ought to get our attention. We've lived through a century of church history where separatism has become a necessary amongst people. But where did separatism lead the Pharisees? Separatism for separatism's sake leads to self-righteousness. It leads to party spirit. It leads to Rome ultimately. I've always, even since the days of my youth, liked the way Paul phrased it in Romans, separated unto the gospel of God. Let us let what we're separated unto define all the other ways and things that we're separated from. Let it all be a gospel, humble-based separatism. Not the separatism of the Pharisees. For some, the Pharisees weren't enough. The Essenes. They said the Pharisees had the right idea, but the wrong practice. You can't live that way and still live in the cities with everybody else. Monasticism is where it's at. And of course, there were the Zealots. It said the Essenes even didn't take it far enough. We have to become terrorists in our own right and deal with the Gentiles that way. Maybe 
Two weeks in a row I quote some unknown country song. Do unto others before they do it unto you. There were the zealots. Well, we've talked about these before. I think it's a sober observation to keep in our hearts. But yet during this time, again, Jerusalem troubled. There were others that knew something of the peace we've sung of. Think about Zacharias. Think about Elizabeth. Think about Joseph and Mary. What they were called to do and to be during these days. You know, they, they didn't cast everything off in despair. They, they took the child according to the Old Testament to the temple and he was circumcised the eighth day. We see them in Jesus' youth traveling to the appointed feasts at the temple. They were not sanctioning the unbelief and sin of the ruling parties, but they weren't abandoning their own responsibilities and their own worship. I wonder how many, if we ask the question, who will I be? Cast everything. There they are. Just them. And then they wonder about who was it that spoke to his wife? Just me and thee, and sometimes I worry about thee. Who will we be? Troubled? Or part of a peaceful faithful remnant. I love the description of Simeon. We've spoken on him before. I don't think he ever gets enough attention in the Christmas narratives, but here's one waiting for the consolation of Israel. But I want you to turn with me now to Mark's Gospel. Mark chapter 1. Mark does not give us a nativity narrative in his Gospel. He opens in this way, Mark 1 and verse 1, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John did baptize in the wilderness and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And they were unto him all the land of Judea and they of Jerusalem and were all baptized of him in the river of Jordan confessing their sins. John the Baptist, that one again whose birth, whose miraculous birth was predicted and given to Zacharias that we considered last Lord's Day. Here's a preacher, the last in the line of the Old Testament prophets who's living in that day. And as the, we read and see of his ministry, we see these that have gone out unto him. And so we find a faithful preacher, a God-ordained prophet in that season, and we find that there are people that go forth to hear what he has to say. Many of the early disciples of Jesus, some of the inner circle of Jesus' disciples, were previously of the disciples of John the Baptist. 
there was a remnant of people that were mindful that all the stuff that was going on among the Greeks and the Romans and among the Sadducees and the Pharisees, things were messed up. And so they took heed to this prophet. They were moved at the word that he spoke. But what characterized his ministry? He preached repentance. He preached the need for the remission of sins. Now these people in mass were ready to hear of messianic preaching. They were ready to be excited about prophecy. They were ready to hear about the bad guys getting what's coming to them. And the good guys, of course, that us getting what's coming to us. It's just a little piece of that story, like the biggest piece of all, that got ignored. The remission of sins. The remission of our sins. And how is that going to happen? And when you look at the disciples of John, you find men that are obviously hungry. You find men that are obviously penitent. You find men that are obviously teachable. They had expectation. They had messianic expectations. But in the grace of God, their, can we say, prophetic expectations didn't overshadow their gospel expectations. Their experience of the preaching of Jesus brought them to the truth of their need for remission of sins. I wonder how many in that day were ready to hear about the Romans getting what was coming to them. The Herods, the Pilots of the world. Think of that little phrase. Again, those little pieces, the little windows the Lord gives us into their experience. One time Pilate has introduced the Galileans. It said, whose blood Pilate mingled with their sacrifices. He had mercilessly slain some of the worshiping Galileans. I could almost say just cause for believers in that day to really be interested in the bad guys getting what was coming to them. Well, vengeance is mine. The Gospel says, the Lord says, we leave those things with Him. And if we would be like these men, again, these disciples, hungry, penitent, teachable. Here's what we find in these disciples of John that became the first of the disciples of Jesus. Turn with me now, if you would, to John's Gospel. John's Gospel, chapter 12. 
I want to read from near the end of the chapter. John 12 and verse 42. We read here, Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on Him, but because of the Pharisees they did not confess Him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Remarkable commentary here. We know and read the overview of the Gospel narratives. The chief priests, the rulers of the people were the ones that stirred them up to cry for Jesus' death and His crucifixion. They for envy delivered Jesus to Pilate. They in their self-righteousness and their lust for their own power seek out anybody whose voice they can't control. Hence all their interactions with Jesus along the way. But it says, nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on Him. Commentators wrestle with this. And those few that I looked up in our study here suggest that the belief that John is describing here is belief like he has described previously in the Gospel. It is a mental ascent. It is a level of belief that comes short of regeneration and saving faith. Here are these that in their heads we could say understand there's something about this Jesus. I think I've mentioned more than once, I'm sure over the years, my dear brother's suggestion all those years ago that I've never followed up, but to preach a message sometime on testimonies to Christ that were uttered by his enemies. Caiaphas, even as high priest, unwittingly said, it is expedient that one man die for the people. But think of those that came back to the chief priest that had been sent and said, never a man spake like this man. To even take that description they used in seeking to put him down and say he was a friend of publicans and sinners. Thank God he is. For that's me. But these men that saw him that heard Him, that were persuaded in some measure that He was telling the truth, that He was their promised Messiah. But it said because of the Pharisees, they did not confess Him. Those that superficial faith here usually draw the Romans 10, with the mouth, confession is made into salvation. They did not confess Him lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. That's a pretty serious commentary on your worldview, is it not? These men that are chunks of cursed clay like myself that we have no idea how long they'll live, but if they live 
pass their three score and ten to four score by reason of strength? What is it? I'll fear them instead of the eternal God in whose hand my breath is. There were people like that in Jesus' day. Will you be? Are you like one of these? These men had a fear of ecclesiastical men. Well, I think that's possible for us today too. What about the fear of the non-ecclesiastical man? The fear of the world. The fear of our culture. The fear of being different. The fear of somebody laughing at me. Or somebody's social media post being more exciting and more beautiful than mine. Pretty pitiful fears. Pretty pitiful loves. Loving. The praise of men rather than the praise of God. The marvel is that if you turn the page and will not take the time, but in Acts chapter 6 and verse 7, we have description there ultimately of some of these men themselves coming to genuine faith. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea were fearful, but yet confessed Jesus. It's not these that are described here in John 12. It's others not willing to confess. But even among them, even among them, the power and the grace of the Gospel. I'll never forget, I know I've mentioned it, but first time I listened to that precious series, you can hear it on Sermon Audio, but three, well, they were supposed to be lectures, but I feel there were more sermons, three lectures by Sinclair Ferguson on the Marrow Controversy and just the whole wrestling between legalism and antinomianism and our understanding of the gospel. And he began to speak of Jerusalem sinners who with the blood of our Savior on their hands, quite literally, were mercifully saved. And we'll be hearing the call of that hundredth psalm with us forever to sing the praises of Jesus. There's a gospel of power. Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3. In 2 Timothy 3, Paul gives us record and commentary with regard to his beloved son in the faith, Timothy, to whom he writes. We read here verses 14 and 15. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. He references there who he's mentioned earlier in the book, his mother and his grandmother. And it says, verse 15, continuing in that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Here's a remnant testimony. 
Timothy, whose mother was a Jew, a Jew of the dispersion. Remember, Timothy is one that Paul comes upon in his second missionary journey. He would have him to go with him and takes him on as his companion in labor. It's one of the quiz questions if you ever enter our seminary and you take the book of Acts under me following the Jerusalem Council, which had all that discussion about circumcision. And there, right afterward, in his second missionary journey, Paul goes and finds this guy named Timothy, and he immediately circumcises him. But he doesn't circumcise Titus. What's wrong with Paul? Can he get it figured out? Well, Titus was of no Jewish descent at all. He's not compelled to be circumcised. Timothy had a Jewish parent. It would have been a difficult thing for a Jewish audience to have an understanding of why this Jew isn't circumcised. And well, there's your answer to the test question when you come along the way. But here's a, a faithful family in the dispersion. Here's a generational passing along of the scriptures. I love what all is included in that description is Paul raised on, of course, the Old Testament, and yet it's those scriptures that are able to make him wise unto faith, unto salvation that is by faith, which has Jesus Christ as its object. That's pretty significant. Timothy was part of a faithful remnant. We don't know the circumstances, but Timothy's dad isn't a Jew. His Jewish mother has married a Gentile. What are all the circumstances that surround that? We don't know. Perhaps they were difficult. Perhaps they were a blessing. We do know that he had a faithful mother, a faithful grandmother that was part of the picture too. Stable, godly upbringing in some tumultuous times of the Gentiles. If you're a believing parent, who will I be in the new year? Pray to be a faithful parent and spouse to give that type of stability and heritage and upbringing to your children. Here's a remnant of the dispersion where Christ was known. Christ was preached. Then if we turn to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Timothy, godly heritage, scriptural upbringing, you just wonder what were the memory verses that were on the little cards that were given to him to put in his pocket and memorize in his youth. There were other people living in the world during that generation. They didn't have Timothy's benefits, didn't have Timothy's background at all. If you look at the catalog that begins in verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 6, 
Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Think about the modern context. Think about the daily news. Stuff we've been acclimatized to in the last generation as you read this list. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Many of the Gentiles, pretty much all of the Gentiles, that's the world they grew up in. Think of all the pieces of that. Think of all the instability that was part of their upbringing. Think of all the lack of love. Think of all the presence of hate and all that comes in its wake that belong to these people. And then we have that phrase in verse 11. Such were some of you. You know, we can look around. We can read some of the news stories. There's always a grain of salt there. What are they trying to sell me? Oh, this guy predicted the last downturn in the economy. Buy gold and silver from him. He's doing okay. Maybe he'll be right. One day the conspiracy theory people are going to be right. But some of them are worried about today and not whatever day that is that they have no clue about. Give them a little more digress. world, all its uncertainties, its insecurities, its lies, its deceit, its selfishness. And we can look at it and we can get stirred. We don't have some of that peace, perfect peace with sorrows surging round. We don't have peace with a future all unknown. We don't have peace because we're not thinking about eternal things. We're thinking about now. We're worried about now. And in all those worries, if we let ourselves go there, we may not see one of those abusers of themselves with mankind you read a commentary and have a scholar or historian work that one out for you in our authorized version. Male prostitute. It's pretty far down the line of rough life and characters. And our world's there today too. But if we are living in such fear and unbelief, we might forget to speak the gospel to that one. 
and have that one be numbered in this church like Corinth. Such were some of you. But you're washed. I was thinking and just wrestling with the survey of many texts I left out. The disciples at that season in John 6 after the bread of life discourse. Some pretty difficult straightforward preaching by the Lord Jesus of what we call the doctrines of grace. No man can come unto me except the Father which has sent me draw him. And of the multitudes that just previously were wanting to take him by force and make him king, and they started to leave in droves. The exodus was so great, the Lord looked at the twelve and said, will you go away too? And Peter, struggling Peter, yet the root of the matter was there. Where do we go? You have the words of eternal life. And I thought of that portion when I was thinking of 1 Corinthians 6. No man can come except the Father which has sent me. Draw him. How many out of this list will God draw in 2024? And how many in this list will He use us as a means to draw them? Such were some of you. My last text is in 2 Timothy as well. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Second Timothy 4. Paul says in writing to his loved son Timothy, he says, verse 9, Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me. For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. Demas. He's named to other places. He's named in the closing greetings of the epistle to the Colossians, which, well, we read today, his chapter. And Philemon, verse 24. Some have noted that Demas is only mentioned in conjunction with Luke. Here in Timothy, Paul says, only Luke is with me. Of course, this last of Paul's epistles, his imprisonment, his obvious physical needs, he's jealous not only for the copies of the Scripture manuscripts that Timothy would collect and bring to him there, but there's a coat I left somewhere too. Would you bring that? And then Luke, the physician, the beloved physician, Paul calls him. Perhaps Luke, leaving other gospel labors aside for a season in his ministry to Paul at this point, but Luke's potential companion Demas. One suggested perhaps Demas is one of those whose faith is wrapped up in somebody else's faith and not his own. We don't know. We don't know his motives for being there in the first place, but we do have an inspired record of his motive for leaving. He loved this present world. Demas, the Gentile, 
He didn't have the heritage of Timothy, but he had some advantages. I mean, which of us has traveled with an inspired apostle for any season of time? Which of us has seen extraordinary workings of the Spirit of God? Which of us has been on a carrying an inspired letter to a church in Asia Minor? Demas had some advantages, but they weren't what captured his heart. The world had his heart. This is a little insufficient sampling of people, of circumstances, of nations, of journeys, of political intrigue and injustice and religious corruption. and Well, they're just partial pictures. It's just a small selection of the people that God lists in the New Testament and gives us just a little, little window to part of what they lived. But what a, what a variety. And so I just ask you the question again, who will I be in the new year? Whatever this unknown fear brings, who will I be? Will I walk by faith or by sight? Will I love the praise of men or will I seek the praise of God? Will I have the fear of man prevail in my life or the fear of God prevail in my life? Will I know the joy of the Lord in the midst of awful trials? like Stephen? Or will I know the misery of a king like Herod? Who will I be in this new year? Let's bow our heads together. Lord, we ask today the help of Your Spirit and just thinking of some of these people that you've named and spoken of in your word. We would not try and get our charts out and figure out where we are. Lord, let us get our Bibles out instead of our newspapers and let us seek to know more of our Savior. Let us be as those early disciples of John that then became followers of Jesus who were humble and penitent and teachable and walked with the Son of God. Lord, keep us, keep any, keep all in this room from being as a Demas and loving this present world. Take up your word by your spirit. Apply it to our very needs. Be it in Jesus' worthy name. Amen.